electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast... Warby Parker in focus, literally. The eyeglass company hit the public markets today, and we've got the history and the strategy from co-founders and co-CEOs, Neil Blumenthal and Dave Goboa. We're just excited for a bigger stage here to amplify the brand and our impact. What we're most excited about is that the business continues to grow at north of 30% year over year while increasing profitability incrementally each year. And some specific important GDP data is out, co-founder of Latitude and the Latino donor collaborative Sol Trujillo. The U.S. Latino cohort has been growing $2.7 trillion. Just in the last decade, it's grown from essentially $1.7 trillion to $2.7 trillion. And United Airlines employees have hit the deadline to get vaccinated. Plus, drama in D.C. when isn't there. I pretend I was dangerous at bars, and I was the least dangerous person in that bar. Didn't you always want to be kind of dangerous? Well, yeah, you wanted to be 007. Just another Wednesday. It's September 29th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. First up today on the podcast, fireworks at a banking committee hearing. Seriously, who'd have thought? On banking, housing, and urban affairs will come to order. This hearing is in a hybrid format. Our witnesses... Fed Chair Jay Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen appeared yesterday ahead of the bipartisan Senate committee for an update on our economy's pandemic recovery. And one key topic was inflation. And the economics question of what feels like the entire year, is it transitory? Ranking member Senator Pat Toomey asked Chair Powell whether he believed the recent increase in prices is now less short-term and more long-term. Here's how Powell responded. Yes, I think it's fair to say that it is. The, um, mainly what we've seen is that the, the supply side restrictions that, that are so much at the heart of the inflation we're seeing have not only not gotten better, they've actually in some cases gotten worse. Look at the car companies, look at the, look at the ships uh, dock, or, you know, with their anchors down outside of Los Angeles. And this is really uh, a mismatch between demand and supply, and we need those supply blockages to alleviate, to abate, uh, before inflation can come down. Powell also revealed that the Federal Reserve is looking into whether trades by Fed officials were within the law. Now, remember, two Fed regional bank presidents, that's Eric Rosengren and Robert Kaplan, resigned earlier this week amid questions surrounding their trading practices back in 2020. Even if, as appears to be the case, these trades were in compliance with with the existing rules, that just tells you the problem is that the rules and and the practices and the disclosure needs to be improved. Powell was also questioned with passion by Senator Elizabeth Warren. The Massachusetts Democrat stated outright that she will oppose Fed Chair Jay Powell's renomination. She alleged that Powell had weakened banking regulations. 
Renominating you means gambling that for the next five years, a Republican majority of the Federal Reserve with a Republican chair who has regularly voted to deregulate Wall Street won't drive this economy over a financial cliff again. And with so many qualified candidates for this job, I just don't think that's a risk worth taking. Your record gives me grave concern over and over. You have acted to make our banking system less safe, and that makes you a dangerous man to head up the Fed, and it's why I will oppose your renomination. Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin got into the market implications of Powell's Capitol Hill appearance. Here's Joe. This Powell thing is, is when you call Powell dangerous, isn't there I, something? I, I almost there, fell over watching that. You know, there's some, But there's something for everyone there, because people on the right... He is dangerous. He's keeping rates too low. People on the left, he is dangerous. He's, there's no bank regulation. He's just, he may be the most dangerous man. Didn't you always want to be kind of dangerous when you were younger? Well, yeah, sort of? you wanted to be 007 and be dangerous in that story. Or dangerous right? just in, like, I pretend I was dangerous at bars. And I was the least dangerous <laughs> person in that bar, for sure. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I don't so know. I wonder, is Jay Powell like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm dangerous? I don't think so. No, it's just a. Well, it was, it, it, she knows how she knows how to capture the theater of it, to use the setup and then use that for the time when you finally announce that. that yes, I am I am going to make sure that I don't support your renomination. We've That's, had people say that in the past that, that she's a great fundraiser based on a lot of the posturing and positions that, that have no chance of ever happening. But she she really works it. She really works it. Yeah. Uh, Does we, she not? I think she works, but I'd say one other thing. But, I think there were positions that she took a long time ago that people thought were you know, wild on one side, and she has, they have become normalized. Meaning so, even though there are oftentimes positions that she'll take in a, in, at a moment, and people will say, well, that, that's a really far out position. That's, you know, a, that's a good years point. Years later, it's actually changed the conversation. No, that's a and good so, point, Andrew, and I think it's especially important in this context in that will this be the beginning of the end? And what would the markets think if you actually were, were not looking at Jay Powell as the replacement? I, I think there's some recalibration that would definitely have to take place because I think the right. conventional who wisdom else has made would that, get renamed. Yeah, who, who else has made that yes. point? Bernie used to say the things that used to call me crazy Bernie, crazy socialist Bernie that I used to say are now in the three and a half trillion dollar bill. Right. No, I think that, it, that a lot of positions that have been on, the bo- on both that sides. That doesn't make this good, On both Andrew. sides that have been far out have become normalized. I know. I, I, I actually have... wondered if that was why you saw the 10-year really reach some new yield levels that we haven't seen in a while yesterday. Because it, for her bringing that up and kind of introducing right. that into the market, you, you can't shrug that off. Powell has uh, served since 2018 and his term expires in February. Wall Street expecting President Biden to renominate him. Although there is growing resistance from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And I, I don't I don't imagine this is going to change the, the dynamic of that conversation too drastically. I imagine he will he will get renominated. But it will, it will there will be a, a drumbeat of questions like the one she asked. Don't you think? I think it also makes sense for why we saw both Rosengren and, and Kaplan's resignations before he went before the Senate yesterday. Um, had right. you not if you seen wanted that. to protect him. Right. Had you not it's, seen that, it would have been even tougher. But it, it, it's truly bipartisan criticism because you can look in the Wall Street Journal today and their take is that there's too much. And they're certainly not saying Republican groupthink. 
uh, at right. the Fed. Uh, the journal's point in the, in the lower op-ed is that uh, you've got everyone just nodding when J-PAL says we're going to stay easy and nodding when he says it's transitory and nodding when they say we're going to keep, uh, you know, keep buying. buying. And, and but the their journal- options are, I mean, the Republican option, there is no option that's going to be better for them. We have Can someone on a lot who would be better for well, sure. but I'm saying, Judy Shelton, but, but right, she's but never going to be. Is there a yeah. hawk on that that you think President Biden is, is going to be? No. Uh, it, no. no. So. And By I way, actually was just thinking. If you're everybody mad, you're probably doing the right thing as the Fed chair. If you're making both extremes of the parties mad. Right. You know, yeah, but I was also just thinking that I think President Biden listens to that wing. Of the party. Well, when, here's the other when thing. When the progressives he, say dance, he starts moving. Well, here, and he, here's that's the thing. what we have it, seen. It, he is he, looking to cut some well, deals but, right now, and he's looking to cut deals with progressives because if you are going to be trimming down the size of that three and a half trillion dollar mm-hmm. plan, you are going mm-hmm. to have to throw some chits their way from time to time. And that's the one thing that I started thinking through. You may win some battles. You're going to have to give up on others. And, and you know, a couple of days ago, we started talking about this. If you are looking for the progressives to suck it up and vote on the bipartisan infrastructure deal first, well, <clears throat> what are you going to give progressives that they're looking for? And this just happens to be something that is coming up and coming down the pike. And I, I wondered about that. The one thing I'll say is if you looked at the S&P financials yesterday, They dropped back down, even though yields were rising and you would anticipate that would be good news for the financials. It was that tough talk coming from Elizabeth Warren about regulating the banks. And by the way, even if they do do renominate Jay Powell, the vice chair position is also up and, and they'll probably be looking for somebody who is a little more strict in terms of regulating the financials to put in that position. So that, that could be why you saw the financials come back down. We should also point out they ran up for four days on, away on the on, leading into this, and we're sitting at all-time highs. So it could be that, too. But there's some tough talk about regulation, and the banks and the financials might very well be considering that. United giving an update on the status of the company's vaccine mandate. Phil LeBeau joins us right now with more. And, and Phil, there are almost 600 employees who have, have not gone along with that to date who are, are set to be fired. Yes, they, they will be fired over the course of the next several days once they do the paperwork and everything goes through. Here's an update on where United stands with the vaccination mandate. Remember, they set this policy back in August. Then they finally said, look, it's going to have to happen by the end of September. 97% complied. They got vaccinated. At least one shot. There are a few who still need to get the second shot. Approximately 2,000 who were seeking a medical or a religious exemption. Those cases will play out over the next couple of weeks. We'll talk about that in a bit. And then you've got 593,000 of the 67,000 employees. So roughly a little over, a little under 1% who will be fired, let go from the company. United is seeking or United should say, I should say, no expected impact on its operations because of the vaccination uh, deadline passing and those employees being let go. The company also, as I mentioned, they've got about 2,000 employees seeking a religious or a medical exemption. There's a lawsuit that will play out over the next couple of weeks. By October 15th, United expects that to be uh, finished in some fashion, and they'll have to proceed in terms of giving them either a medical leave or a personal leave. Those uh, policies have already been outlined to all the employees. With regard to the four, the 593 who were let go in an employee memo, CEO Scott Kirby, along with President Bret Hart, wrote, for the, for the less than 1% of people who decided not to get vaccinated will unfortunately begin the process of separation from the airline per our policy. 
This was an incredibly difficult decision, but keeping, with our, keeping our team safe has always been our first priority. As you take a look at shares of United, remember, they will be deciding the uh, vaccination exemption cases, those exception cases. That will happen over the next couple of weeks, likely by October 15th. Guys, back to you. Hey, Phil, it strikes me that um, you kind of covered the gamut in, in terms of companies' responses to these things. Yesterday, you were with us with the Ford CEO, and his position was we can't make people take the vaccine because it's really something that needs to be negotiated with the union. Obviously, United has unions, too, but they came out on, uh, on this end of it. What, is that a difference in the language that they have with their respective uni- unions, or is that just a, a difference in interpretation? It's a matter of, of negotiation. And it depends on the company, Becky. With regard to the airline unions, those discussions were taking place for some time because there is so much interaction between the pilots, the flight attendants, and the, uh, the crews that are here at the airports with the public. Those conversations started much earlier than perhaps other companies in other industries. And so they did work out that policy with all of their unions. And early on, they had a lot of buy-in. I think when they announced this policy something like 75 or 80 percent of the pilots and flight attendants were already vaccinated. So they didn't have to go as far with those workers as compared to other companies in other industries may have to when they say, look, we need to talk about some type of a a vaccine mandate. Yeah, it's interesting. You make the point that they have so many of their employees dealing face to face with the public on a daily basis, too, which makes a huge difference. Thanks a lot, Bill. Next on Squawk Pod, get your glasses on. Warby Parker is going public. The co-CEOs Neil Blumenthal and Dave Gilboa are expanding their company's footprint and their revenue. Even though, you know, in certain places like New York, people know of Warby Parker, we're just trying to make people aware that we exist. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Track, stand under by. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC, and we've got a story you might want to take a look at. Another hot startup is hitting the public markets. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Warby Parker going public on the New York Stock Exchange through a direct listing. The company will list under the ticker WRBY, and the reference price is $40 a share. Joining us right now, first on CNBC, Warby Parker's co founders and co CEOs, Neil Blumenthal. And Dave Gilboa, it's good morning to both of you. It's been quite some time. I brought, by the way, I've got my glasses here. I don't know which, which models you're wearing, but um, I'm putting them on uh, for today. We've, I think I was trying to figure out, I met you guys uh, probably about a decade ago. You started the company 11 years ago. So here we are. Um, 
$5 billion valuation. Why, why, why go public now? Would probably be the, the first question to ask. So we built a strong business, and we're just excited for a bigger stage here to amplify the brand and our impact. You know, over the last 12 months, we've generated roughly $500 million in revenue, but we still only have 1% market share. So we just think that we have a lot of white space in front of us, and, and now's the right time. So, Dave, you guys are adjusted EBITDA uh, profitable, but uh, not truly profitable yet. just yet. Walk us through what it looks like to get to profitability and what that timeline might be? Sure. So uh, we look at a variety of financial metrics, and we found that um, our investors use adjusted EBITDA as the um, appropriate measure of profitability for a business of our stage. Uh, But of course, uh, we we look at a variety of metrics. And what we're most excited about is that the business continues to grow at north of 30 percent year over year while uh, increasing profitability incrementally each year. And so uh, we have less than 1% market share in this massive category and see huge tailwinds, uh, both to, to grow our top line and bottom line uh, in, the, in the years to come. You guys talk a lot about the revenue mix. And right now, 95% of the revenue is coming from glasses. The rest of the mix is eye exams, accessories, contact lenses and the like. If we had this conversation three years from now, what do you think that mix would look like? What do you want it to be? Yeah, that's one of the things that we're so excited about is just all these growth opportunities. We have 13% unaided awareness. So even though, you know, in certain places like New York, people know of Warby Parker, uh, we're just trying to make people, you know, aware that that we exist. Contact lenses are 2% of our our business, but it's a $5 billion plus market. Same with eye exams, Uh, you know, 1% of our business, but it's also a $5 billion plus TAM. Um, so they're just massive opportunities for us uh, in, in the future here. And, and how are you guys thinking about online versus bricks and mortar? I remember when, when you first started, I think people thought it was going to be strictly an online business. And then, of course, you know, you guys went bricks and mortar in a big way. That scaled the business it, uh, very successfully. Has that changed? Has the dynamic changed at all in a post-COVID world where, where maybe more people are buying things online in terms of your ability to, to get glasses to people and, and what I assume is a higher margin online? So we describe ourselves as customer first, but channel agnostic. And uh, what's really exciting for, for our business is that there's so much opportunity to scale our uh, physical retail footprint, but also um, scale our, our e-commerce offering. And so we have around 150 stores today relative to thousands of stores that most of our um, larger competitors have. And the category has trailed uh, a lot of other consumer goods in terms of e-commerce penetration. It's still uh, in the single digits. And we have the opportunity uh, to really um, scale through our uh, leading offerings like our uh, virtual try-on and our virtual vision test. And ultimately, we don't care where a customer transacts. We just want to make sure um, that they have the best experience possible. And and the way that we measure that is through um, our net promoter score. And uh, we have an industry-leading NPS of 83 and uh, expect that more of our customers will continue to shop both online and offline uh, as we continue to scale. One of the things you guys note in the prospectus is uh, the potential for supply chain uh, issues. This is something that has confronted lots of companies uh, over the last year and continues to confront them. I'm I'm not sure you're confronting them per se just yet, but tell us about sort of where the supply chain stands right now. And do you do you imagine trying to shift it as a result of some of the things that we're all seeing? 
We produce frames in Italy, Japan, and, and China. Um, we do lab work primarily here in, in the U.S. out of our two optical labs, uh, actually an hour uh, from here in New York City in Salzburg, New York, and um, in, in Las Vegas. I mean, I think what we found in, in the last 18-plus uh, months is that our supply chain is resilient. Um, and we're going to continue to vertically integrate. You know, being a direct-to-consumer brand, that's how we deliver exceptional value and are able to sell a product like the ones I'm wearing for $95, whereas typically they may cost several hundred dollars uh, elsewhere. Um, so you'll continue to see us vertically integrate because we can do things cheaper, faster, and, and better uh, when we do it ourselves. I'm sure you've spent a lot of time, I don't know how much time you've spent thinking about this, but uh, Facebook just announced a partnership with Ray-Ban uh, about a week and a half ago now, uh, for these smart sunglasses that have cameras in them. Uh, I was curious what you thought of that and whether you're going to try to develop things like that yourself. Sure. So uh, we haven't tried that product ourselves, so I can't comment specifically on it. But we are excited that uh, the form factor uh, around a pair of glasses uh, like that I'm uh, wearing are, uh, is, is garnering more attention. And, and glasses were the original wearable technology. And uh, and we think there's lots of opportunity uh, to add additional technical capabilities uh, to this form factor over time. So what do you think it looks like five years out? I mean, do you think we're going to have little either like chips in these things or, or I'm going to be able to see stuff that I'll see that other people won't? The technology is definitely emerging. Um, and, you know, we have conversations with folks. We develop the uh, technology in, internally. Right? We were the one of the first to be using 3D renderings in our design uh, process have filed a bunch of uh, patents um, for for our eyewear, and we're just excited uh, about this category. You know, 140 billion dollars globally. As more technology gets infused with this product, it, the table just expand. Neil and Dave, uh, congratulations! It is uh, it's pretty cool uh, to have watched you guys effectively grow up from the from nearly the very beginning. Uh, we wish you lots of luck. Thank you. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, we're headed to the Latitude Conference in San Diego, and we're looking at the impact of the Latinx community on the entire American economy. Co-founder of the conference, Saul Trujillo. Capital should be flowing to where the growth is. It hasn't yet. So we're going to talk now about new structures, new processes, and ways to stimulate this even further, because there's a lot more to be had. And I don't like us as a nation, as an American, leaving money on the table. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Good morning and welcome uh, back to Squawk Box uh, here on CNBC, Hump Day, Wednesday. Wednesday. I'm Joe Joe Kernan with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. That's number six, isn't it? uh, On the coffee? Yeah. Second coffee. Big, though. Big. Big. Venti. uh, Big. I've been doing one iced coffee. Yeah. And then one... I've noticed that. One regular. I've noticed that. It's helping a little bit. The ice, I do quickly. You do? I can drink it very quickly. It's sort of like a caffeine drink. Very quick. What about a double espresso? And then this I, I sort of sip on because it. it's warm. And so it's, you it can't is. just slurp it down. No. No. 
I haven't heard any slurping. The Latino uh, Donor Collaborative releasing its 2021 U.S. Latino GDP report. The study shows total economic output for Latinos in the U.S. was $2.7 trillion in 2019, which was the latest year the data was available. In addition, a growth, growth of U.S. Latino GDP has averaged 5.6% over the last two years, double, double the rate of the U.S. economy. Some remarkable numbers here. Join us now to break it down. Saul Trujillo, co-founder, chairman of the Latino Donor Collaborative, also chairman of the Trujillo Group, and a longtime business executive and, and board member. And we go way back. I don't know how long, Saul, to uh, like the, the dark ages uh, almost. I was, reading, I was reading here about who's at your conference, and it says that there are CEOs, celebrities, politicians, and economists. That could be just you, I think. You'd have to be, you could be like the only guy there and still cover most of it. Maybe not politicians, right? No, no, Joe. Good morning. Good morning, Joe, and good morning, everybody there. It's, uh, it, it is that time of year where we get to talk data. And as you know, Joe, as you say, I've run a lot of companies all over the world, and we have been talking for a long time, but one of the big phenomenons here in the United States that we have maybe not talked as much about until more recently, and we thank you, CNBC, for focusing on the total economy as opposed to just parts. And the U.S. Latino cohort has been growing, given the numbers that you just said. $2.7 trillion. Just in the last decade, it's grown from essentially $1.7 trillion to $2.7 trillion. And it's fueled by population growth. It's fueled by youth. It's fueled by educational attainment. It's fueled by a lot of factors that we always talk about as businesses, and we always talk about our competitiveness. Well, this is one cohort that's differentiating the United States from Japan, from Europe, from a lot of the com- countries that are comparable to us in age and, and, and maturity of the marketplace. But this is a youthful cohort, and it's driving so much of our growth, labor force, consumption, entrepreneurship, and all the above. The, the size might have not have been exactly uh, clear in terms. So it's larger than people thought, I think, in terms of the population. But the growth is, is something that uh, it, it really stands out. It, and why, I, I, why is that, do you think? Because the, 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 it's, it's faster than the overall growth of, of, of GDP. Well, I'd like to go back to one of my, I think, one of the top presidents that we've had in our history, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan understood, you know, how we needed to grow the economy. You and I, Joe, were around to, to remember when he was putting in place, you know, capital investment incentives. He was talking about immigration and the fact that it was okay. We needed to supplement what was happening already in our baseline trends of birth rates. And so if you want to have a growing economy, and by the way, I have done this analysis that shows that the single largest correlating variable to GDP growth is labor force growth rate. And so I think Ronald Reagan understood it. And if you look at the highest GDP performance levels in modern history, you'll see that Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton, those two eras of eight years each, we had, we averaged around three and a half percent GDP growth rate and also the highest levels of labor force growth rate. So again, you know, when you look at GDP and it's just simply a calculation of outputs of goods and, you know, goods and services by times number of people plus investment plus consumption, you'll see that 
there's been a formula here that Ronald Reagan started. It got slowed and dramatically slowed in the last two administrations, both the Obama and Trump administration. So we now have to think about how we, how we can refuel, re-stimulate our economy so that as we compete for the next decade or two or three, we take advantage of the cohort we have and also supplement it with more because that has been our DNA. That has been our strength. None of us here in this country can say that we were the original natives. We were all immigrants. That's true. So what, what do you need, uh, do you think, in terms of you need private sector help? You need is it three and a half trillion? Is there something that, that can be done in, in terms of just taxing and spending that, that, that can get us back to those two uh, eras that, that, that you were just alluding to and, and out of the, the, the slower era we've seen for the past 12 years? Well, Joe, I would say that's almost the perfect question. And so uh, at Latitude this year, we're going to be talking. <laughs> we're going to be talking about capital. We're going to be talking about the fact that this is the fastest growing cohort, the most entrepreneurial cohort in terms of business formations, whether they're sole proprietor or employer-based kinds of businesses. So it's the most prolific, but it's the most undercapitalized. So then you say, okay, as a business person, let's do the root cause. What's happened? Why isn't capital flowing? And there's a study that's going to be introduced by Bain Consulting that we employed to help understand the flow, the source of capital, the flowing of capital, and where does it ultimately go to. And it's going to show that over the last decade or two, we keep on putting capital into the same places who make the same kind of investments in the same you know, locations and perhaps sectors, and that's not a way to grow. You know, we diversify. Look at our economy today. The tech sector was very small 20, 25 years ago when you and I were first talking, and now what it is today. So you have to evolve the flow of capital. I'm a capitalist. So the point is capital should be flowing to where the growth is. It hasn't yet. So we're going to talk now about new structures, new processes, and ways to stimulate this even further because there's a lot more to be had. And I don't like us as a, as a nation, as an American, leaving money on the table. I'm just looking at some of the notes. I mean, the, the Hispanic, the Latino population in terms of COVID, has it been, how would you characterize it? And, and, and has the job, the, the jobs come back? Has the, the wage gains that we were seeing before COVID finally in a lot of different sectors of the economy, how has, you, how has that been uh, progressing at this point? Well, obviously the U.S. Latino cohort, they are basically the patriots of our economy. They were out there working on the front lines and being exposed to the ravages in many cases with the, you know, many deaths and illnesses with COVID. But as you might see from some of the data that has recently uh, been talked about, including housing, they still are accounting for 52% of all new home mortgages. They're resilient. This cohort is resilient. They work. They are entrepreneurial. And so they're coming back. So there have been wage gains, yes. There's a lot of states that have passed $15 minimum wage, which has been helpful to that, and they tend to be the bigger states. Uh, there's also this notion of people valuing a shortage of workers, and now we have 10 million unfilled jobs, almost 11 now, and we only have 6 or 7 million, quote, available workforce. So, you know, that's creating a demand and a pressure on, on wages, 
which has been a good thing because if you look at the data, the data shows that this, you know, the entry level kinds of jobs have been the least uh, effective in terms of getting more and more income because of lack of demand. But now there's so much demand. Uh, wages are going up, and, but we need more. We need more. And so I, I think that all of us need to understand we as a nation cannot grow GDP without a growing labor force, period. End of story. Uh, I thought you were going to get it. I, I, when you mentioned Reagan, I think you might have triggered Andrew a little bit. Uh, 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 did, uh, did you, did you, did you want to? I'm good. You're, you're good? All right. All right. It's great to see Sal, but I'm good. I, I get, uh, you know, I, I, they didn't take a shot at me. because You mentioned Reagan. I get teary. I do. I know. I do. I, I do. And, and you know, Saul, we're, we may be boomers, but that we're not chopped liver. Don't we, didn't we learn something? Aren't we wise because we're boomers? Don't, don't you think that there's some wisdom? Don't we? We've lived through everything these other people have lived through, plus another 20 years and learned things, right? Right? You know, you know, Joe, you're exactly right. Thank you, Saul. Happy. It, we've been <laughs> celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month we here have. as well. And it's good to have you. It's always good. Uh, good to see you, uh, my, my old pal. That's a wrap for today's Squawk Pod. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends. We really appreciate it. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 